I hope you've been enjoying reading through our reading plan this year, getting through the New Testament in about four months. We've got about one more week of reading, and uh, then we'll be putting out a new plan for the summertime. Those of you who like a reading plan will enjoy perhaps some time reading in selected psalms, so that's where we'll be heading. I'll be preaching this sermon series, NT125, which is uh, based on the reading, weekly reading, for that one more week, and then we'll be moving into a new sermon series called The Biblical Home. That's a series that I wanted to preach last year about this time, and something happened, <laughs> and everything was derailed, and everything changed, and it's still in the process of changing, but pretty determined to come back to, to the idea of what does a biblical home look like? How does the scripture shape our ideas of parenting, of being a husband, a wife, a family member, even a church member, um, and so on. So that's what you can look forward to in the weeks to come. Our scripture this morning was written to uh, a group of people by the Apostle Peter. They were Christians living in an area that we now know to be Turkey. These brothers and sisters were experiencing significant hardship. Um, experiencing what the letter calls various and, and, and fiery trials. They're suffering evil for doing good, enduring insult for living purely, bearing injustice for remaining true to the gospel message. In short, they're being mistreated simply because they were Christian. So it is to those believers who are suffering because of their faith that are looked down upon and marginalized because of their convictions and their lifestyle choices that Peter writes with assurance and he offers them both the perspective and the encouragement that they're going to need to persevere. His letter has in fact been a source of perspective and encouragement for persecuted Christians through the ages. We might agree that in the Western world we who have enjoyed the protections of a free society for most, if not all, of our lives know little or nothing about the type of persecution that was being experienced by these early Christians or that is being experienced even now by our brothers and sisters across the globe. But that persecution and hostility towards Christianity, we might also agree, appears to be drawing ever near to us today. Pastor and author Tim Keller has written, the overall decline of Christian influence in the West is inarguable. Each generation is becoming less religious and less Christian. While religion was broadly seen as a social good or at least benign, increasing numbers of people now see the church as bad for people and a major obstacle to social progress. Traditional beliefs about sexuality and gender are being viewed as dangerous and restrictive of people's basic civil rights. Pastor Alistair Big wrote recently an article entitled, Welcome to Exile, It's Gonna Be Okay. <laughs> he wrote, Christians are increasingly gonna be seen as different and not in a good way. We are increasingly gonna to have to choose between obedience and comfort. The next decades will not bring apathy to the gospel, but antagonism, and that's okay. After all, that has been the reality for most of God's people through most of history. The same conflicts and questions and choices facing Peter's first century readers are, as Al Mohler puts it in his most recent work, for us a gathering storm. 
How will we weather the storm? What will we do? Well, whole books have been written and are being written about how to respond to those hostile to Christianity, but for us this morning, we're going to hone in on just one verse, the 13th verse of 1 Peter 1, and that's going to give us a start at least. That's going to be the subject of our attention for the next few minutes. In that verse, Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you know this by now that in Scripture, whenever we encounter a therefore, we always have to ask, what's it there for? Which usually involves going back and reading what came before it, right? And so in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 1 in this epistle, Peter reminds his readers of who they are and what they have in Jesus. That's the, that's the short, condensed version of those 12 verses. Who you are and what you have in Jesus. Lest they forget or come to think differently because of the opposition that they're facing, they are God's chosen ones. They are recipients of a new birth. They are beneficiaries of a great and eternal inheritance. They are enduring a suffering that is not pointless, but necessary if God is going to accomplish his perfect purposes in them. They are saved, and they are being saved, as they await the eventual and sure salvation of their souls at the return of Jesus Christ. That is the backdrop against which we read the 13th verse. Peter saying, this is who you are, this is what you have, this is what you can look forward to. And then he begins to lay out a plan for how to live godly in an unfriendly, antagonistic world. A plan that is just as relevant for Christians today as it was for those very first readers. Let's pray. Father, as we humble ourselves now and we come to sit underneath your word, we ask you to speak to us. Your voice is the one we are here for, and yours is the one that matters. Lord, help us to rightly divide your truth. Give us the courage to receive it implanted in our hearts. May it affect the change that you intend for it in our lives, in our perspectives, in our attitudes, in our conduct. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Preparing your minds for action. Here's where our modern translations let us down a little bit. But if you happen to be following along in the King James Version, you're going to get a taste of the original language intent or the word image that's there anyway. Because the King James Version of this verse says, and you might have, you might have learned it this way or read it this way at some point, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. You came to church this morning, you didn't even know your mind had loins, did you? <laughs> now you have learned something. It's been worth the trip. I hope gird up the loins. I love that. It's old English. Gird your loins. What does that even mean? It is, it is a phrase that means to prepare oneself for something challenging or difficult. It is to get ready. It's true. It's on the internet. Look. If you are wondering how you might gird your loins someday, there it is. I don't want you to spend a lot of time figuring that out, but I just wanted to point... What I really like about, if you look at that, how to gird up your loins on the, on the other side of that, it says, the art of manliness. <laughs> yeah, every man should know how to gird up his loins. Okay, get rid of that slide, Ben, that's distracting. 
This is how, but this is what a man in ancient times would have to do because those flowing robes that they wore were fine for normal activity. But if you were going to do some strenuous work, if you wanted to run, if you were called upon to fight, that's going to get in the way. So in those circumstances, a person would have to take that robe and pull it up between his legs and tuck it into his belt. That's going to allow him the freedom that he needs to move quickly. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, the Israelites are commanded by God to eat their Passover with their loins girded, which means ready to move at God's command. Jesus in Luke 12, 35 says, Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. The modern translation of that verse, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. So in his epistle, Peter really is just pointing out something that Jesus has already said. God calls you, God calls us to be ready in the moment. To be paying attention to him and to be ready in the moment. Okay, so what does it mean for you and I to, to gird the loins of our mind? I think of it this way. Sometimes hardship and hostility are overwhelming. It is easy to be overcome by the evil that surrounds us. That's why God's word in Romans 12 teaches us not to let that happen. It says, don't, become, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good, which is a wonderful sentiment and something that we seriously want to contemplate. How do we do it? But I would say that in order for you and I to carry that off, we have to choose it. We have to be ready for it. In other words, this isn't going to be your natural reaction. When evil comes to roost, when you are persecuted, when somebody treats you poorly, you're not necessarily quickly going to think about how can I overcome all this with something good? That's not what you're going to do. Peter exhorts us to be ready for the moment when we need to take action. Look for and be prepared for and see the spiritual principles that are at work. And position yourselves to respond properly in obedience. That's what Peter's getting at. If we fail at this, if we just approach life every day as business as usual, even if it's not business as usual, we're going to be prone to misinterpret. We're going to make no adjustment for the times that we are living in. We're going to be unprepared to recognize the workings of God. It, it, it will be lost on us that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. This is a time when a trip into Ephesians 6 would be helpful. We're waging war, but it's not a physical war. It's a spiritual war. And if we keep up with this imagery, if we're not alert, if we don't gird the loins of our minds, then we're going to be easily tripped up. That's the whole purpose of girding is so that you don't get tripped up. But if we don't do it, will be tripped up. So step number one for faithful living in times of trial is to be mentally prepared, to be spiritually alert, to be girded, as it were, for mission. Are you ready for that? Should God tap you when God calls you? Can you move quickly in obedience? What is God up to in your life right now? And, and what does faithfulness to God look like? Step two, Peter writes, is to be sober. In the passage that I just referenced from Luke 12, Jesus speaks of a servant who was not ready for his master's return. He took advantage of his master's absence, and rather than tend to his master's business, he took the time to indulge himself and to act badly, beating the hired hands and drinking and getting drunk. In that story, Jesus contrasts readiness 
with drunkenness. And Peter does something similar. If we're going to be ready for action, he says we have to be sober-minded. Literally, the command is be sober. So we can read that two ways. We can read it literally and we can, and we can read it figuratively. Both of them are appropriate, I think, and intended. Because later in his letter, in chapter 4, Peter was going to write about literal sobriety. 1 Peter 4, 1 to 3. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So let me just pause here and show you that Peter is encouraging you to do here what he just encouraged you in the 13th verse of chapter 1. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Gird the loins of your mind. Have a clear perspective on this. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So his audience is primarily Gentile. And these are people who have left a way of life, which he's later going to call a futile way of living, in order to follow Jesus. This is how they used to be. And what Peter is saying, be careful that you don't fall back into that old way of being. In other words, Peter's saying, that's what you were, right? Sufficient for the time past are those lawless things. That's what you were, but it's not who you are. That's how you once lived, but it's not how you are to live now. So be careful that you don't fall backwards. So listen, friend, what is the temptation, almost a universal temptation, I'd say, when times are hard? What is the pull when we are suffering? Is it not to come out from under that suffering somehow? Is it not to escape that hardship some way if we can? Whether that's a physical or an emotional suffering. One of the ways to do that is to indulge the self. To numb the mind. To find pleasure in the flesh. To offset the ache and the pain that is in the heart. To make the world go away if only for a short time. As commentator Edmund Clowney puts it, sobriety, both literal and figurative, marks the Christian lifestyle. Drunken stupor is the refuge of those who have no hope. Drunken stupor is the refuge of those who have no hope. And as Christians, we have hope. And we have something better to live for, don't we? So we don't have to run away or escape into drugs or alcohol. As Christians, we do have hope. And so a drunken stupor is not needed. It's not an option. We are literally to be sober. This, by the way, is why the church preaches against drunkenness. This, by the way, is why the church should take a stand on something called recreational marijuana. What is that but our trying to come out from under the stresses of the day? Let us say that we can't relate to that, though, right? I mean, we know what stress is like, and we know that there are times we'd like to check out. And after the last year, who hasn't been tempted that way? <laughs> like, seriously, Liz, put me in a medical coma and call me. When this is over, there's fantasies that we have. But so we get that, right? We should get that. Life is hard. It really is. 
But we have hope and we have something worth living for that most people don't. Therefore, we're called to be literally sober. And this, I do think, sometimes is where they say, well, there goes the church, you know, telling me I can't have any fun. No, the church is not telling you you can't have any fun. The church is saying be moderate, be reasonable, don't be mastered by anything. Don't get yourself to a place where you can't think rightly or clearly about it. We are called to be sober, but that is not a joyless sobriety, right? All oh, the way we know we're Christians if they look miserable. <laughs> no, it's not a joyless sobriety. It's not sober, it's sober, okay? We need to get it right. Temperate, circumspect. Not addicted or mastered by any intoxicating substance. We're to be figuratively sober as well. And that means possessing clarity of thought and understanding, being alert, being observant, being discerning. Wayne Grudem, in his commentary on 1 Peter, writes this. He said, to be sober forbids not only physical drunkenness, but also, since the phrases before and after have to do with attitudes of the mind, letting the mind wander into any other kind of mental intoxication or addiction which inhibits spiritual alertness or any laziness of mind which lulls Christians into sin through carelessness. So, maybe we don't escape into substances. Maybe some of us here have already gone down that road and we're not going there again. <laughs> we know the trouble that's down there, but... We might distract ourselves with, we might lose ourselves in more socially acceptable things like social media or video games or surfing the web or binge watching TV shows. Things that are lauded in our culture like professional advancement or athletic accomplishments or making money or pursuing relationships. We, we bind ourselves up in these things, and they go, oh, there you go again, the church telling us we can't have any fun. No, the point, the point I'm making is not that we have to avoid all those things I just said. We do not. We just have to make sure we're not mastered by any of them. We just have to make sure that we're not using any of them as a way to not confront reality or deal with what is in front of us. We have to make sure that we are not, as Neil Postman claims, entertaining ourselves to death. The call on Christians when encountering suffering and hardship, persecution and hostility, is to face these things squarely and with a clear mind. And Peter seems to have this in mind. Chapter 5, verse 8, he uses the same term. You know, as you're reading through the scripture and you come across terms that are repeated, you ought to make note of that because they, they represent often threads that are bind, winding their way through the entire letter or the entire treatise or whatnot. So Peter three times uses this idea of being sober-minded, one uh, that we're dealing with in, in one thirteen, the other for the sake of your prayers. And here in 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour your enemy, and you have one. The devil wants you to be terrified, wants you to be paralyzed, wants you to, to be resentful of your hardship and your struggles. He wants to devour you. He wants to eat you up. He wants to overcome you. 
by getting you to think wrongly about your trials. He, he wants you to doubt your relationship with God. He wants you to feel as if maybe God is put off with you. Maybe God is angry with you. He wants you to, to have a sense that God has forsaken you or forgotten you or abandoned you. You might fall for that if you're not sober-minded. The way that we combat such flawed thinking, which comes quite natural to us, is with clear and biblical thinking. So Peter says first, we're to have a mind that is prepared for action, ready to look for and ponder the work of God and respond in obedience. Second, we are to maintain a mind that is sharp and clear in its thinking. And third, we are to possess a mind that is focused, a mind that is, sets its hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hard times can lead to despair. Prolonged suffering can lead to despondency. But Peter's message, then and now, to believers experiencing these things is this. Since you are, and since you will be saved, live in hope. Since you are and you will be saved, live in hope. Now, hope here, as, as elsewhere in Scripture, we've talked about this before, is not the way that we usually would think of hope as in wishful thinking. It's more than that, right? As in, I hope the Patriots' draft choices make them a championship football team again this year. That's, that's what I hope for. That's what I want. But that's not what this is talking about. Nor is our hope to be tethered to some not just personal desirable income uh, outcome like I just said, but some vague hope as well. Even something like, well, I hope this pandemic goes away. Or I hope these vaccines work. Or I hope this country returns to its founding values. Not even that. Hope in this passage is a confident expectation in a promise given. So the exhortation is for us to confidently trust that out of the present disorder of human striving will come a new order at the return of Jesus Christ. Now, the breadth of this verse seems hard to comprehend. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But that jumps out at me and challenges me because I don't know if anything in the last year has received my full attention. And I don't know if I'm capable of putting my full attention on anything anymore. I have looked for my car keys more in the last year than ever. Aren't we all suffering some sort of brain fog? Am I the only one? I would forget my head if it were not attached. So easily distracted. So easily put off. What's getting my attention? What am I thinking about? What am I feeding my soul with? Where do I allow my eyes to gaze fully? Set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word translated fully can also mean completely or perfectly without wavering. And I like the King James on this one. It says, and hope to the end. Hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hang on. Don't give up. Persevere. Do not become faint or weary in the midst of these trials. 
Right? Paul says that to the Galatians. In due time, you'll reap. You don't become weary. Don't give up. Whatever opposition you might meet, whatever obstacle is in your way, no matter how much might be done by others to entice you to compromise your faith or abandon your Christian principles, fix your eyes on the end and set your hope on the grace that will be yours when the course is finished and the race is finally won. Keep your eye on the prize. Zoom out and see the big picture. That's what Peter is saying. This, by the way, is not the escapism that Christianity is sometimes criticized for. Peter is not advocating for God's people just to hunker down and weather this awful storm of persecution and increasing hostility until final extraction. Okay? That's not what we are called to do. Peter's talking about having the resolve to face the storms and not shrink back from doing what is right. To stand firm. His is a strategy of engagement. If your mind is ready, if your mind is sharp and thinking, you'll be able to respond to God and do what is right. And that's what we want. Because we are called by Jesus, as long as we live, to be salt and light in this world. And if we, have, if, we, if we can't be those things, then we've lost our purpose. What are we doing here? Just waiting for an ultimate rescue. No, we're here to advance the kingdom of God. We're here as ambassadors of Almighty God. And we've got to stay the course. And that's what Peter wants us to do. Persevere in a world that at some level is going to hate you because it hates your Lord. And it really doesn't know you any more than it knows your Lord. I cannot tell you all the grace that's going to be brought to you when Jesus returns. This is one of those phrases in the Bible that I think it's almost so big we might be tempted to just read over it real quick and go, that was nice, check the box. I can only say this, that the very contemplation of what this will entail is intended to be the anchor that will hold us fast and serve as the inspiration that allows us to persevere. So it's worthy of our consideration, is it not? What will the grace be brought to us when Jesus Christ returns? What will that day be like when we see our Savior face to face? When he crashes in on the scene of his creation to say, enough, it's done. There's going to be a new heaven. There's going to be a new earth. There's going to be a new way. All the wrongs are going to be righted. All the crooked ways are going to be made straight. What kind of grace will be yours? Grace upon grace upon grace. As you realize that God loves you, an undeserving person, and has saved you to be eternally with him. Think about those things, because those things are designed to keep you moving in the right direction. Edmund Clowney put it this way in his commentary, the indescribable blessings that will be carried to Jesus' followers when he returns can be counted on. Our hope is sure. We can bank on it. It is not so much an attitude to be cultivated as a reality to be recognized. A reality to be recognized. It's going to happen. 
So how do we do that? How do we put our trust fully in, in the grace that's going to be shown to us? What's our motivation even? Listen, I think this. We can put our trust and hope in the grace that will be brought to us at the return of Jesus because we as Christians know already the grace that has been brought to us in the incarnation of Jesus. That is, we understand the grace that is ours because of the gospel. We understand the grace that is ours because of the birth, the life, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This he has done for us so we can count on what he will do for us. We celebrate the grace that is ours now in confident assurance of the grace that will be ours then. When we received the gospel message, we were saved. And while we draw breath, we are daily being conformed to the likeness of Jesus. We are being saved. And beloved, one day, when the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend, a new age will dawn, where sin and death and pain and loss will forever be things of the past. And we will finally, fully completely be saved by the grace of God to eternal life. Set your hope fully on the reality of that coming day, Peter says, and you will faithfully endure the trials of this life. Our Father, we thank you and we praise you for the hope that is in your word, for the instruction that we need and, and, and appreciate, Lord, for the reminder of where we should be looking. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for saving us, saving us now and for the salvation that will be ours. Jesus, when you come back, amen.